This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our first show for March. 2018. Of course, March has spring break, also has lots of rainy weather, and it also has St. Patrick's Day. In order to talk about this show, let's bring in our own little leprechaun, one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Uh, Aaron, go blah. <laughs> I would have gone with the goes in like a lion, comes out like a lamb, but we live in New England. It snowed yesterday. It's all gone now. It'll be back tomorrow. I can't wait for April to get here. Done. Done. Exactly. Done. I understand. All right, Jim, before we get started on our topic today, which is about Marvel characters in Disneyland Paris and what that means for the domestic parks, quick question for you, James. One, Black Panther. Have you seen it? Yes, I have. And I've been reaching out to various folks at Disney to get their take on it because Disney had to do that rarest of rare things. Black Panther was done so well its first weekend. It was also projected to come in number one this weekend. And Disney put a projection out that it was going to make $104 over the weekend. And then they had to come back Sunday night and go, oh, I'm sorry, we we have to revise the number up to $108 million. And just this morning, Len, they had to do that again? Wow. They heard from all the theaters and it went to 112. And it's like, this isn't just a popular movie at this point. This is a genuine phenomenon. Yeah. At this point, you're talking about it being uh, one of the top 10 grossing movies of all time. The thing that I heard from the presidents of the theater associations was it's not a question of whether it passes a billion dollars in global box office, but when. Yeah. And in fact, I understand it's at six now. They anticipate... Not necessarily this coming weekend, but middle of next week or thereabouts. Here's the problem. Disney had really, really hoped that this would be a success. And in fact, you look back as far as November of last year, they announced that the Black Panther was going to be doing a meet and greet at uh, California Adventure, which actually Mm -hmm. started the day the film rolled into theaters. Likewise, the Black Panther was definitely going to be part of Marvel's Day at Sea, which started this past October on the Disney Magic. But, of course, because of the licensing deal with Universal uh, for Marvel Superhero Island, there was a restriction in bringing the Black Panther to Walt Disney World. However, just this past weekend, while I was making my calls and hitting my, my list of people to chat with, a friend of Imagineering just asked me, did you hear about the Imagineers out in front of the... Wonders of Life Pavilion at, at Epcot. And it's like, yeah, yes, yes, there was a story about that. And so, so what is the city of Wakanda hidden under? And it's like, well, it's hidden under a dome. And what does the Wonders of Life show building look like to you, Jim? So add that to the fact that the Wonders of Life building is typically tasked to be the festival center building for food and wine and flower and garden. Did you notice what's off the table of a sudden, Len? Yeah, you can't use uh, Wonders of Life for the Festival Center for Flower and Garden now. It's uh, it's closed for it. Yeah. Huh. They've got space in the pavilion for two rides, plus a lot of walking around stuff. They do. The problem is that based on the film, 
people would at the very least love to do a flyover of Wakanda and you've got the four simulators that are sitting there. Yeah, but that's 20-year-old technology at this point. That's it exactly. You nailed it. To be honest, Len, those things have been stripped for parts for years to keep Star Tours up and running. And yeah. when they made the changeover to digital projection at that attraction, they obviously didn't do that for. Right. Right now, it's more a case of this is a phenomenon we have. We have an open cavity, so to speak, in our smile at Epcot. We are about to make a huge investment in Guardians of the Galaxy. So it's one of these things where Disney took this thing off the table because they wanted to get into that space and check it out and see, would this be possible? Could we fast track something, especially if we've suddenly lucked into a giant phenomenon? Yeah. The problem here is that Black Panther is in fact featured in some artwork at Universal Studios Marvel Superhero Island. And I understand that the way the contract is written that it's sort of a gray area around whether being a character in just a painting or in the scenery counts as being off the table for Disney. That's clearly something I think that a team of Disney and Universal lawyers are going over right now, right? So watch that space Yeah. and let's see what happens. It's one thing to bring the Guardians coaster online in late 2019-2020 after Ratatouille, but they're already talking about trying to get a Black Panther 2 film out inside of two or three years. Yeah, that's tough because it takes two years to make a film. Yeah, but right now there's suddenly a lot of financial incentive, and Black Panther will in fact be featured prominently in Infinity Wars, which comes out in May. There's evidently a lot of pressure on Marvel Studios right now to like, hey, can you juggle the order of what's coming and could we maybe get a new Black Panther movie out for 2022? Not to belabor the point here, Jim, but why wouldn't we put Wakanda in Africa in the Animal Kingdom? I mean, Rafiki's Planet Watch, not not the most compelling ride that Disney's ever produced. No, no, but here's the thing. We had the Flights of Wonder attraction shut down and brought back up with pretty light retheming. This is around the up characters, right? Yeah, we got Doug and Russell. Yep. And that was a a relatively successful show all by itself. No need to change that except for the fact that there is a perception that Animal Kingdom is character light, that it has wonderful animal displays and obviously now with, with Avatar, some really compelling throw rides. The line for Flights of Passage is still three to four hours long, Len. Oh, yeah. We did an article with the Orlando Sentinel a couple of weeks ago where we showed that the lines for Flight of Passage and Navi River Journey are not diminishing like every other new Disney attraction that they've made in the past five or six years. That this one is just the lines are growing, which is evidence of word of mouth. It's something you didn't see with Frozen, the Frozen ride in Norway. You didn't see it with obviously Soren or Test Track or you know, any of the, the refurbs. You also didn't see it with Seven Doors Mine Train or Enchanted Tales with Belle or even the Princess Fairy Tale Hall. I mean, all of them enjoyed, you know, a lot of popularity once they opened, but then they settled down into sort of a normal routine. What you're seeing with Navi River Journey and with Flood of Passage is that the lines are still going up, even when you take into account the seasonal adjustments. And that's very rare. I totally agree. So that's one of the situations where Disney doesn't feel like they need to do anything to bring young adults to the park because Avatar is clearly showing some. Yeah, that's all they need. So you you then have to pivot to to what is perceived as the actual weakness, which is kid appeal. 
And as far as Imagineering is concerned, the way to solve that for Animal Kingdom is you go to the other billion-dollar franchise that the Disney company launched within you know, the last two and three years, and that's Zootopia. So Rafiki's Planet Watch, you know, long term, the plan is that that goes away. In fact, for me, that's kind of stunning because if you think about it, Lion King was Disney's first modern day billion dollar franchise. In fact, the play still is on Broadway, hugely successful. Uh, And they're hoping to actually see with the live action film or excuse me, the CG redo of Lion King that comes out next year. They're hoping for Mm -hmm. the sort of a reboot for the franchise, but long-term Zootopia is a better fit for that park. And that's what's going to happen back there. It would draw kids to the back end of the park, which makes sense. One little caveat here, and that is we are still in that space where Rivers of Light is perceived as something that people go to and then go, why did I go to that? It's like a visit to the doctor. The best you can hope for, it was a pleasant experience. There we go. (laughs) Or that it was an up-to-date issue of Highlights magazine. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, everything was fine. But now, suddenly, all parts of the Disney company are pivoting toward Black Panther, and like, okay, how could we do that? And for the folks in entertainment, the notion that if we were to do a nighttime show on the water there with the Black mm-hmm. Panther characters or the imagery from the films or, God help us, maybe a flying vehicle, that might be a show that people would actually enjoy as opposed to, well, that was pleasant. Yeah, that would be an interesting sort of turnaround for them because I think you had said before they're not really planning to change rivers of light out for a couple more years. But to your point about striking while the iron is hot, if they could develop a show within a year, people would do it. And also the river where it's shown borders on Discovery Island. I mean, you could sort of like squint your eyes and see Africa from all of that, I guess. I hate to say it, but it is one of these situations where when you have... All those continents look alike. (laughs) (laughs) When, When you have a phenomena like this, And you're right. Rivers of Light, initially, the thinking in-house was, okay, it's done. Let's get a return on our investment, and then let's just zero on the 50th anniversary and get a new show loaded for 2021. But this is different. Yeah. And you have to understand, when you put a show in that people actually want to watch... It's actually a great point that at this date, early 2018, Disney is basically committed to everything that they're going to have up and running for the 50th anniversary of 2021. Now Black Panther comes along, it's a huge hit. And it's it's like, how do we fit in? You know, we wanna we wanna build something here that people will enjoy. That hopefully if a if a sequel comes out in 2021 or 2022, there's a ride to go along with it. But it's like we've already committed these six bullets to the six sharks in front of us. What do we do with the seventh shark now, right? Like that sort of thing. Remember all of the footage that was shot for Mission Breakout was actually done during the production of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. They actually set aside an entire day on the set to shoot that stuff. Yeah. So just hang on to that, folks, and then chew on that bit. All right. So speaking of other uh, big draws, over in the Magic Kingdom, the big restaurant draw since it opened has been Be Our Guest Restaurant. We heard news this week that Disney is changing over the dinner menu to a fixed price offering starting July 27th and reservations became available like in the last 24 hours for it. The price here is $55 for adults and it consists of a specific menu that you can choose from. What's what's driving this change, 
Jim, to a fixed course, fixed price menu. I point back to the earlier show we did where you were talking about, what is it, the two meal coupons, the two points that did people have to pay for Be Our Guest and how, as a direct result, people are lingering over dinner when you factor in the alcohol component and all that. Oh, right, right, right. We talked about this on an earlier show, but when Disney added the alcohol component to the dining plan for 2018, one of the side effects of that was that it made everyone's time at the table longer. So we're thinking 10 to 15 minutes. The idea here is that it takes one trip for the server to explain the alcohol component of the dining plan and to bring a drink menu. Then the server has to go away and wait for people to make a decision about what alcoholic or specialty drink they want with their meal. And then uh, the waiter has to return, go over that choice, maybe make some recommendations on a wine based on what the guests are going to eat uh, with the wine. So, you know, if you're going with beef, you would suggest a red with fish or chicken with white, you know, something like that. But all of that process takes 10 or 15 minutes, which is longer than it had taken before. And as a result of that, fewer tables are turning over in each of the restaurants. So you think this is actually a response to that at Be Our Guest, where they still need to get the same amount of money over the course of a night? Exactly. I mean, it's just a a locked-in menu that narrows the choice that allows them to even shave five minutes off of the ordering process. You move that all through the dinner hour, which would be our guess, what does that start at? At 4, 4.30 thereabouts? 2.30. <laughs> 3 o'clock, I think. But it's yeah. a time savings. Sure. The menu actually looks pretty good. They'll have the, the standard French onion soup. They are bringing charred octopus on, which is something that they serve at Tiffin's that I really, really like. They'll still have the escargot. They'll still do the uh, assorted meats and cheeses and stuff like that. They will have a filet, obviously. They'll have a few other things. Lamb, which I think they do really well. A bouillabaisse, which is interesting. I wonder how many uh, Floridians are going to order bouillabaisse in July. You know, there's nothing more that I want on a, in a humid Florida July night than to stick my face over a steaming hot bowl of soup. It just doesn't sound... <laughs> but we'll see what happens. Also, they've got uh, pork tenderloins and uh, chicken. Price for kids, $35. Like I said, for adults, it's $55. We'll see what happens. I think you're right that this is a way for them to turn over tables much more quickly than they were. So we'll see what happens uh, there. Again, reservations uh, are available now starting uh, July 27th on that. Did you see that uh, Disney is now doing minivan service to the airports? And it's getting a very strange response from the folks who are taking it to the airport? Yeah. So remember, minivans are the service that Disney is using with the Lyft car sharing service where you can use the Lyft app to get around on Disney property for $25 a trip, flat rate, no matter where you're going on property. Um, And when Disney originally started out, they had, uh, I think, 27 vans total, 25 of which were in operation at any given time. They've now expanded the fleet to 45 cars. And three of those cars are dedicated to driving off property. One of the pieces of feedback that Disney was getting from guests was, look, we we like this service so much, we'd love for you to just drop us off at the airport, sort of like Magical Express does. And the reason why the car is more convenient, according to guests, is this. If you were to take Magical Express, you typically have to leave three or four hours before your flight, depending on the time of year that you're, you're leaving. And that's to make sure that Magical Express can pick up other guests at other resorts and then drop you off at your airport terminal in time to make your flight and get through security and whatnot. But if you're on a minivan, you don't have to worry about picking up people at other resorts and you don't have to worry about dropping off people at different airport terminals either. You can It's literally door-to-door service. And conceivably, if you're at the Contemporary, you can stay in the Magic Kingdom until you know two hours before your flight 
and take the minivan over to the airport. And I've done this actually. I've literally been in the Magic Kingdom an hour before a flight was scheduled to take off, left the Magic Kingdom, got a, a ride at the Contemporary and made the flight. That's how close you, I mean, barely made the flight, but made the flight, right? But the, the point is that for direct door-to-door service, you get uh, an extra hour or two hours in the park. The cost of this, though, dropping off at the airport is $150, which is about three times what it costs a normal Uber or Lyft drive to do it. But here's the thing that I find interesting, Jim. So many guests like this that as they're being dropped off at the airport, they're asking the minivan drivers if they can pick them up again for their next trip to Walt Disney World. Like, can you pick me up at the airport when I come back in six weeks or when I come back this summer? If so, I'd like to make that appointment right now. You have to assume it's not something that the folks at Mears want to hear, given that... No. (laughs) They have their arrangement. Mears Mears has a monopoly on, uh, or a near monopoly on transportation to it from the airport. Every Mears owns, I believe, every taxi service in Orlando, or at least all the big ones. And they also have a contract with Disney to run Magical Express. Face it, we are talking about a very different clientele that wants this sort of service to the airport. And you have to assume, oh, true. Have yeah. to assume yeah. with a $150 charge for this service, if you reach out to Mirrors and flat out said, look, this is a narrow subset of people who use the transportation system. If we give you a taste, a cut, I don't know how much that would have to be so they wouldn't feel threatened. Wouldn't this be a really interesting revenue stream to get going, at least at the deluxe resorts? Or? I think it would be. The difficulty that Disney's going to have with Mirrors is I'm sure there's some sort of non-compete clause in the contract that they would have to resolve. From Mirrors' perspective, though, they have to be absolutely terrified about ride-sharing programs picking up and uh, dropping off at the airport. They, I'm sure they fought Uber and Lyft picking up at the airports. And I'm sure they would especially fight Disney with it because Disney could put way more marketing muscle behind that. From from Mir's perspective, it's one of those things where Disney would say, well, we'll give you 30% of the cut now. But as Disney's market share grows and they get more power to negotiate, that number would just go down. And that's the concern that that Mears would have. The other thing that they've got to look at, frankly, is in 10 years from now, if there are self-driving cars, you can take the toll roads to and from the airport where the traffic is relatively light. It's a not very complicated route. You could have self-driving cars doing that. And at that point, what do you need Mears for? Unless Mears is running the self-driving cars. That's a larger concern. So the 45 cars that Disney has now running in their fleet, you know, becomes 90, becomes 180 cars and pretty soon that's that's a lot of people right no i agree i agree i think that's the the concern that they have on that i love the way people are actually gaming the minivan system please tell the story about pioneer hall In, in talking to people who are running the minivan service they said that one of the most popular destinations that they get most popular requests is to take the people to the hoop de doo review in fort wilderness and the reason is is this and they said it's really funny the guests will ask for a ride there and then assume that they're going to take a bus back. The advantage of taking the minivan to Hoopty Doo is that you get dropped off not quite in front of Hoopty Doo, but like at the horse stables right next to it. And people love that because you get dropped off and you just walk over to your dinner and everything's fine. But coming back, you could take up to three buses to get back because you have to you take the first internal bus within Fort Wilderness to get to the front of Fort Wilderness. Then from there, you would have to take a bus to a theme park 
And then from there, you'd have to take another bus from the theme park yeah. that's open to your resort. And so what people are saying is they want to go back and forth to Hoop-de-Doo using the, uh, the minivans. They say it's one of the most popular destinations. No, that makes sense. And obviously... Disney being Disney, it's like, just to think about it, the number of people who are getting on the buses who've come down to the hoop de do times 20, yeah. that's a nice chunk of change every night. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. We actually mentioned this. When the minivan first came out, we talked to the people who were starting it, and they said specifically that, that they were going to be doing this drop-off at hoop de do and we, we actually identified that as like one of the best-selling points of it. We've had it in the, in the unofficial guide since then. But I think, imagine if they did, and this is all hypothetical, Jim, but imagine if they did a quick drop-off on Magic Kingdom side of the road near the Contemporary for the same thing, where you got to bypass the TTC and the monorail and the ferry, and you just had to walk that little short distance from the intersection of the Contemporary and the Magic Kingdom into the Magic Kingdom. Imagine how much time you would save and how many people would do that. And you have to wonder, though, you'd have to create the space to do that which would take away from parking for Bay Lake Towers uh, and the, the cast members that park back there. Honestly, that's a great idea, Len. I hope somebody's listening yeah. in. If the concrete work costs $50,000 to do, that's only 2,000 minivan trips. That's not a lot of trips. You'd probably get that in a month. That's only, what, 60, 70 a month? 70 a day a month? Uh, please. I hate to say this, but when you figure about the disruption that's about to happen for the Tron coaster being put in and what that's going to do for... That's true, because that's exactly... Well, I mean, that's what I'm saying. The bulldozers are there, Jim, right? Just drive them over another hundred yards. Built the walkway over Asian Way, or it used to be, you know, back when the road was named after the resort they never built. But yeah, you could build a walkway over, you could build a you little turnaround for the minivan and... Ah, oh, hell, while you're at it, why not just yeah. double layer the parking lot so there's actual parking back there? I've actually asked that question at Disney, why they don't build a parking garage, and they said that land is too cheap to do it. By the way, speaking of, this is going to be the most entertaining discussion of uh, infrastructure mm -hmm. we've ever had. If you use the, the new flyovers at the Magic Kingdom, or if you're going to a resort, you don't have to stop off at the toll booths? Not yet. In fact, I think we, we talked previously, I guess you got to experience it the first day it was up and running? Oh, it's fantastic, yeah. And it's it's really taking a huge load off of the Magic Kingdom toll booths, making everything go so much faster. And you got to believe that this is one of those things that Disney identified early on as something they, they could do to get ready for larger crowds, not only for Star Wars, but for the... 50th anniversary that this is a no-brainer we'll just let people go to the resorts it's right across from uh espn world of sports for the flyover for the studio how is the construction oh it, it's all huge giant piles of dirt i mean there's just construction everywhere and every day you drive by you see progress it's really kind of amazing how fast they're getting the work done but that place is going to be unrecognizable to anyone that hasn't been there in 10 years it's gonna be one of those things where you go in and you know, the little small town that you grew up in is now, you know, New York City or Manhattan or something like that. It's the the overpasses, the clover leaves. It's all going to be very, very complicated, I think, for a lot of people. But if you're using an app like Waze, it'll be fine. But you won't recognize it if you haven't been there in a while. Okay. More power to them. All right. So uh, speaking of things that you uh, won't recognize in a few years, let's talk about what's going on, Jim, at Disneyland Paris with the changeover from Rock and Roller Coaster starring Aerosmith to it's going to be a Marvel ride. Is that... 
Did I hear right? This is true. And I apologize because I have to kind of pull a Michener. Mitch's book, Texas, that he couldn't talk about oil in Texas without first mentioning the dinosaurs. And in this case, the dinosaur I'm talking about is Michael Eisner, who back in February of 1985 revealed that Disney was going to build a studio tour in Florida. And what's funny is that when he did this, this was his first meeting in front of Disney shareholders. He's only been on the job for like five months at that point. So he's like, you know, well, we haven't fully committed to this. And But by July of 1985, not only have they fully committed, but they've cut this deal with MGM UA where it's kind of a brilliant licensing deal Lynn, in that mm-hmm. initially Disney gets the use of the MGM name, which they felt they needed for the Florida studio project because they were trying to celebrate old Hollywood and Disney really wasn't part of that. Disney always sort of operated outside of old Hollywood. Didn't really have a star system, wasn't really known for its... Live action things, I get it. So okay. it's a 20-year deal. For the first two years, Disney just pays MGM UA $100,000. And then once the park opens, that bumps to a quarter of a million dollars per year. And then every subsequent year, the fee that Disney pays out to MGM UA, that jumps $50,000. And eventually in the final year, tops out at a million dollars. $50,000? <laughs> These days, Iker would sort of go, hang on, I got that on the dresser here with the change. Don't spend it all in one place, kids. But in addition to getting the naming rights, they got the rights to 250 movies. They could use imagery, props, you know, the whole schmear. But Eisner wants to get the most possible out of this fee because it turns out whatever Disney attorney wrote this deal, they didn't say specifically for Florida. They said worldwide. So May of 1987, Disney announced plans to build in Burbank the MGM studio backlot. July of 1988, Disney and the Land Company announced that they're going to build a second gate next to Tokyo Disneyland. And what's it called? Disney MGM Japan. December of 1985, Disney signs the initial letter of agreement with the government of France to build a theme park resort outside of Paris in 2,400 hectares of beet field in marne Valley. So over the next 15 months, okay. Disney hammers out a contract with the French government. And the French government, they don't want one theme park. They're making a lot of concessions to Disney. They want a really-for-real resort, and that, to them, is Walt Disney World, which means multiple theme parks. Disney's pushback is, well, look, the Magic Kingdom opened in 1971, and we didn't get Epcot open till 11 years later in 1982. And so the French government is like, okay, we can get behind that idea. So what they wind up doing is the deal that they sign on March 24th, 1987, park number one has to be ready to open by spring of 1992. Park number two has to be open by spring of 2002 in time for the resort's 10th anniversary. And finally, park number three has to be ready to open by the spring of 2017 in time for the resort's 25th anniversary. I'm going to have some questions about that in a second, Jim. Go ahead. All right. So he still wants to get a lot of uh, out of the MGM thing. So November of 89, Disney announces that they're going to build Disney MGM Europe right next door to Disneyland Paris. And in fact, they're going to get it open earlier than the agreement. Rather than having it open in 2002, this park is going to be open to the public in 1996. So they're going to pivot 
from constructing the Magic Kingdom to four years later, they're going to have the studio open. But -hmm. what happens is that the stock for the Euro Disneyland Resort is selling so well by February of 1991 that Disney actually reaches out to the French government, goes, you know, you know that park we said we'd open in 96. How would you feel if we opened it in 94? And the French companies are like, oui. But the Imagineers raise their hand and like, that's a little crazy. We're going to have the equipment there or the people. And, but some of them want to actually go home and visit their families. So could we move that back a year? So they finally settle on 1995. All seems fine until the resort actually opens. The night before, on April 11th, if you watch CBS... You saw, I can't figure out why they picked Don Johnson to do this, but he's the one who introduces the future of Euro Disney moment in the special. And this is a quote, Len. You know, for most of us, a quarter of a century from now seems like a long way off. But for the Imagineers of Euro Disney, the year 2017 is as close as tomorrow. The very next thing is a flyover of the white foam model of Euro Disney MGM. You can see the entire park at full build-out. And they addressed every one of the issues that they felt they'd done wrong in Florida. It's worth it to go through and just sort of step through that video, do freeze frames along the way, and see how they were going to revisit, for example, the Chinese theater and how they were going to do Indiana Jones different and all that. Huh. Because one of the problems with the studios is its haphazard layout, where it's not the rational hub-and-spoke system like at the Magic Kingdom or sort of the double circle that you get in Mm -hmm. Epcot, right? The studio is always that one place where you have to think to yourself, what section am I in and how do I get to where I'm going? Yeah, and they are hoping Toy Story Land and Galaxy's Edge addresses some of that, but we'll get to that this summer. But anyway, okay, so April 12th, 1992, the park opens. Eight weeks later, Len... The Walt Disney Company quietly puts out to the financial community that, you know, that theme park we were going to open in 1995, we might push that back a year. This, for the financial community, was like, what? Was the canary in the coal mine that maybe things weren't going as well with Euro Disney? I mean, when you take your 25-year master plan and eight weeks in, you're going, you know, maybe we're going to move some stuff. That means you are getting financials or you're getting attendance figures coming back that you did not expect. And they did. We, We know that. The bankers that Disney was dealing with There was one issue they wouldn't bend on, and that was the condition set back in March of 87 when Eisner signed that contract in regard to the next two theme parks. And flat out insisted that Disney had to meet those timelines, which is why January of 1999, we hear the first rumors about a studio theme park. Mind you, the project has been on hold for five years at this point, but okay, they're they're reviving the idea. You know, and they confirm the project is going forward in November of that same year, but this park was built on the cheap. Oh, yeah. Anyone that was there when it opened knows that it was it, it's basically the Toy Story land with some uh, with some Hollywood studio stuff. It was not compelling no. when it first opened. That's March of 2002, and it was, if you will allow for inflation, they actually spent exactly half of what they spent on uh, the Magic Kingdom of Euro Disneyland Paris. The way they pulled that off is they did clones of, for example, Rock and Roller Coaster with Aerosmith. And, and some of the, the backlot tour was just 
strange. Did you ever take it when it was when it first opened? Well, I remember the Rain of Fire vignette. The Rain of Fire thing was just bizarre. Yeah, yeah, that's the one thing I remember about and it. You have to understand that Rain of Fire, it was supposed to be this Disney disaster film where they were digging in London and dragons, yeah, causing yeah, fires. And and- so the film came and went in theaters in about a week, but they had already committed because the thinking was, well, Rain of Fire is set in London and we want people from the UK to come over. So we'll recreate this section of London where there's a hole in the ground and every so often a big gout of flame will shoot out. And it's like, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys did that in April of 1998 at Animal Kingdom when the dragon was supposedly by the Discovery River adventure. And how long did yeah. that run? Like a month, three months? Yeah, this thing went on to the point where like I couldn't remember what the name of the film was that <laughs> was they're supposed to be referencing, which is not a good sign. Back to the studio. So by the time the fifth anniversary of the studio rolls around, they are almost embarrassed that, look, we have to put in a, a new attraction. So they actually put in Toon Studios, which features two Pixar-based attractions, Crush's Coaster and Cars Race Rally. And those kiddie rides were also followed by the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. Now, mind you, not the super cool version that they have at Disney Hollywood Studios. No. No, or for that matter, the really cool version that, that Tokyo Disney sees. No, they got a clone of the, the built-on-the-cheap version that was built for California Adventure and opened in uh, May of 2004. Yep. And and then you had the people who were running the studios in Paris trying to decide, do we go this route? Do we go the Tower of Terror thrill ride route? Or is it a smarter play to go with the Pixar stuff? 2006, you know, the Walt Disney Company buys Pixar for $7.4 billion. And if you're going to be a good corporate citizen and make the people back in Burbank happy, shouldn't you be doing more Pixar stuff? And that actually, for a while, is what they defaulted to. We saw that very same year, uh, April 2006, we got Buzz Lightyear Blazer Blast opened at Disneyland Paris. And then in August of 2010, as you mentioned, we got the Toy Story Playland, which to call those rides lightly rethemed is insulting to those things that are lightly rethemed, Len. Yeah, yeah. But to be fair, four years later, we got the Ratatouille attraction, which was themed out the wazoo and was so popular, we're now getting the Epcot version of this, which will open spring of next year. Is that the first ride that is bitted over the pond to a U.S. park since Lights Motor Action? That's an interesting point. Yeah, because uh, Lights Motor Action made the jump. That was 2005 for Walt Disney uh, yeah. Disneyland's 50th. So, no, you're right. You're right. Yeah, so the first time, it'll be it'll be 20 years or 15 years. But now, to get to the point of what we're actually finally talking about today, folks, you want another thing that really changed Disneyland Paris? It came in August of 2009 when Disney decided to buy Marvel Entertainment for $4 billion. This acquisition was what finally forced the investors and bankers who held Disney's feet to the fire previously. This is what made them finally blink. And the president of Disneyland Paris uh, at that time, Philip Gass, Disney cuts a deal for Marvel in 2009. Come September of 2010, he's sitting down with all of these investors. And he knows, Philip knows, that in seven years' time, Disney needs to get a third park up out of the ground. Otherwise, the contract yeah. is void and it's gonna not going to be pretty. So 
Philip brilliantly plays the cards that he's been handed. He's like, look, obviously you folks heard about, you know, we acquired Marvel August of last year. It took us a full five months to finally close that deal. I mean, December of 2009. In fact, we had to throw another $300 million into the pot. But we now have all the Marvel characters. And here's the thing. We've been talking about doing a Marvel park featuring all of those characters here at Disneyland Paris. That would be park number three. But the problem is we've just acquired them. And it's frankly, there's a lot of licensing agreements that, that have to run out. Yeah, Stan Lee was doing licensing agreements with anybody who'd walk through the door. We got untangled this. It's going to take a couple of years. That was the thing. I think we need more time. And the investors, they actually went for this gambit. But suddenly they renegotiated the deal. And so instead of having to deliver Park 3 in 2017, they actually kicked the deadline down the road 20 years. They kicked it down to 2030. Wow. Oh, from uh, 2010 when they were negotiating. Yeah, that changed everything, Len. Disney had had a minority share in this resort forever especially mm-hmm. on the heels of what happened in 93, 94. They'd actually lowered their position from the, the 40% they held early on. And August of 2012, rumors actually began to bubble up that Disney was thinking of buying the majority shares of, of Disneyland Paris, making it a wholly owned subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company. And during this same window of time, August of 2012, Bob Iger is already talking with George Lucas about acquiring Lucasfilm. Oh, right, yeah. So think about this. A Disneyland Paris resort that has both Marvel and Lucasfilm properties. Oh, yeah, it'll it'll drop people from all over the continent. Even with gas cutting the steel in 2010, it wasn't until 2013 that we started to hear anything serious about Marvel attractions coming to Disney Studios Paris. In fact, you know, we started talking about what's going on with Rock and Roller Coaster because this was the first rumor that made the rounds, and that was a, a Spider-Man-themed coaster going in there. Yeah. I remember that. As it turns out, that didn't happen. What happened instead was the following spring into summer, they had a Spider-Man meet and greet that was hugely popular at that park. And this whole notion of if we're going to get serious about Disney buying Disneyland Paris, we're going to have to have consistent management, which during this period... Iger opts to renew his Disney contract. He's now going to hang on as the CEO through June of 2018. And we were lucky, actually, that he did that. Because November of 2015, we had that horrible incident in Paris with at the concert hall. And right. attendance at Disneyland Paris tanked after that. And there were a lot of people like, well, crap, we don't want to buy the resort now. I mean, look at that. And Iger's like, no, 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 no. This is the smart long-term play. We really, really, really want to do this, which is finally why in February of 2017, the company announces that, okay, we're going to up our ownership stakes. We're shooting for 85%, and that will allow us to take full control of the six hotels on site and the two theme parks. And not an inexpensive proposition plan. And in order to, to make this happen, they had to make a tender yep. offer of $2.12 a share, which is 67% more than the shares were actually selling for at that time. Wow. But again, it was important to grab these and as many to get them off the market as possible. But at the same time, to sort of give the financial community some idea that we're serious about this, we've got plans. That March of 2017, 
they announced that they're going to be closing Cinemagic in the studios. Uh, this is a show that opened with the park in 2002, and this is going to be the home of a new indoor stunt show that will feature the Marvel characters. And then at the same shareholders meeting where they reveal this, Disney tips their hand for what their plan is for the Disneyland Paris Resort. And it's a 10-year plan where they plan on spending $2.1 billion on upgrading and improving the resort over the next 10 years, with a lot of that money budgeted for Marvel-themed attractions that are slated for Disneyland Paris. Now, do you remember how Philip Gass said that Marvel was going to be the theme of park number three? And how all of the Marvel attractions are now going into park number two? Yeah. How would you feel if you were that investor who'd been sort of cajoled, you know, back in 2010 into making this deal? I would say that if you wanted to count the studios as park number three, then then the next park to be built is park number two. That would fulfill <laughs> my terms of the contract. <laughs> There we go. But all right. So June of last year, they complete their buyout. Uh, they take full control. It's not a month later than Bob Chapek is on stage at the D23 Expo. Remember, they said they're going to upgrade two hotels. Well, one of these two hotels is the Hotel New York. It has sort of a, a New York of the 1930s Art Deco look to it. To me, it feels like uh, Las Vegas circa 1995. <laughs> I, I mean, literally, I, that's, that is, it, the hotel reminds me of Las Vegas wow. more than anything else. But anyway, go ahead. I know, not what they were going for. I know, I understand. Given where you're living now, I really want you, once this opens, to tour this. Because the way they're talking is that when this hotel reopens in 2020, Lynn, the gimmick is that this four-story building will resemble Iron Man's Manhattan hideout, the, the Stark Tower, but also sort of married to a contemporary art gallery in Chelsea. Does that sound doable to you? Where in Manhattan is Stark Tower supposed to be? Yeah, I have to get back to you on that. I want to say when they were doing all the fighting in the original Avengers film, they were down on Madison Avenue and, and Stark Tower seemed to be looming overhead somewhere off of between Madison and Times Square. 200 Park Avenue. <laughs> Is that what they say? Oh, my God. This is amazing. Hold on one second. <laughs> okay. Let me see where 200 Park Avenue is. 44th and Park? No. Midtown. All right. It's okay, Midtown. That Fair works. Enough. The way I always look at this is how many trains does it take me to get there? And for that to be one on a walk, so that's fine. <laughs> but Chelsea? No. Chelsea's 20 blocks south and on the opposite side of the island. So... When they mention the Chelsea Art Gallery thing, that's because as you wander through the hotel, there are going to be these displays of props and costumes and storyboards and that sort of thing. But as for the hotel itself looking like Stark Tower, if anybody's over at the resort right now and you get the chance to go to the Hotel New York, there's a corridor in the hotel. You have to look for the rooms 1167 through 1173. Evidently, to show the Disney executives what a Marvelized version of Hotel New York would look like, they redecorated mm -hmm. this hallway. So you've got Ooh. the metallic reds and gold of the Iron Man costume, and you've got the blacks, the grays, the whites of classic comic books. And I'm told that the imprint on 
the carpet in white is actually sort of a map of Manhattan land. I want you to check this out because you're there. You live there now. I will go. Yes, I've I've lived it. Yeah, at least I've lived the four block radius of my apartment. Anyway. (laughs) Okay. So that's gone forward October of last year, uh, 2017 at London Comic Con. We had executives at Marvel and Imagineering talking up what's going to happen this summer at Walt Disney Studios in Paris. And if you saw what they did at Disney California Adventure this past summer with the opening of Mission Breakout, the Summer of Heroes, this is kind of a variation on that, that Mark Huffman, who's a creative director with with Disneyland Paris, talked about how this three-month-long event was going to be a fully immersive world. You're going to have things that happen outdoors. You're going to have private meet and greets with characters. We're doing a stunt show indoors that, you know, we're taking an existing theater and we've transformed it. We've gutted it all the way back to the cinder block walls and adding technology to pull off to tell story. And in fact, that's the show, the one going into Cinemagic Land. It's called Marvel Superheroes mm-hmm. United. It really sounds ambitious. I mean, the notion is the show starts with Iron Man and Captain America battling at each other like they did at the end of Civil War. And then they're joined on stage by Spider-Man and Black Widow. But the four of those characters are then expected to do battle with Thanos, who, if you've been paying attention to the Marvel Infinity Wars trailers, this is the big bad, the guy who's been lurking in the background for all of these Marvel Cinematic Universe movies that's finally now coming on stage. And it's like, I just wonder, how are they going to do this indoors on stage? Yeah, an indoor uh, an indoor scene, that's, that's going to be challenging. Yeah, and meanwhile, the outdoor attraction, this is titled The Stark Expo, Energy for Tomorrow. And this is a sort of a stunt show that happens around the audience where... You've got the Avengers, in this case it's Thor paired with Black Widow, who are doing battle with Loki. They're taking a chunk of what really worked well at Anaheim's Summer of Heroes, the Guardians of the Galaxy awesome dance-off, and this is where guests get to interact with Star-Lord and Gamora, but that's all of next summer, just this past month, Chapek revealed another chunk of the the Marvel stuff going into Disney Studios Paris, and that's the replacement for Rock and Roller Coaster. This is quoting from what he said in Japan at the D23 Expo there. A new Marvel-themed attraction where riders will team up with Iron Man and their favorite Avengers on a high-speed hyperkinetic adventure. What I've been told, Len, is basically... Mm-hmm. This is the, if you had wings, Buzz Lightyear plan. So the track's not going to change, but the scenery will? There we go. That's what I expected, by the way. I know we talked about in 2016 where Disneyland Paris revealed their long-term plan. Again, the $2.1 billion over 10 years. And I want to circle back to the specific language that was used in the capital expenditure section of the, this document. This includes, in particular, the renovation of two hotels and attractions, as well as a major new attraction for 2024. Now, we already know about the hotel redo. That's the Hotel New York becoming the Hotel New York Art of Marvel. We already know about, previously, get a permission, I guess they're doing an upgrade of the the Disneyland uh, Paris Hotel, the one you walk under as you enter the Magic Kingdom. Likewise, we know about the Rock and Roller Coaster redo, 
changing it from Aerosmith to Iron Man. Renovated attraction number two, I'm told, is mm-hmm. Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout. Oh, they did it in DCA. They can do it there, too. Well, yeah, I mean, they're virtually identical, given how hugely popular that attraction has proven to be with, with visitors to uh, the Disneyland Resort in California. Yep. Then there's that major new attraction for 2024. Given that Hong Kong Disneyland is also in the middle of a marvelization, so to speak, that last year they added their Iron Man experience attraction that was hugely popular. Sometime later this year, they are shutting down their Buzz Lightyear Astro Blaster attraction and in its place going to gut all of the Buzz Lightyear show scenes in that and bring in an Ant-Man and the Wasp themed attraction. You're, You're going to be traveling through a space and helping the Ant-Man and and Wasp take down Zola. But when they were announcing this, they also announced that for 2023, in much the same way that they built Mystic Point and Toy Story Land and Grizzly Gulch outside of the berm of that theme park, they are extending Tomorrowland's footprint at Hong Kong Disneyland. And there is a massive Marvel-themed attraction that's being built on the other side of the tracks. As I understand it, the concept art that's out there basically recreates the look of Avenger headquarters that was shown in Ant-Man. We now live in a world where Disney, when Disney does something of size, they do two of them. I think about it. Galaxy's Edge for Anaheim, Galaxy's Edge for Orlando. Yeah. And given that the Avengers headquarters, the giant attraction, is opening at that park in 2023, and we have a major attraction opening in 2024 at Disney Studios Paris. For me, I think the smart money is on that attraction being cloned. Yeah, it sounds like it. With all the work that they're doing worldwide to get ready for uh, Galaxy's Edge until 2019, then Disneyland's 50th. I mean, they're they're basically booked in through through 2020 and getting things built. That only gives them four years to to build a ride, the odds are they're not going to do something completely new in four years. Which brings me to my final question, though, that given that as part of the Fox acquisition deal that Iger supposedly extended his contract with the Walt Disney Company through 2021, so what's the smart money? Will he, in fact, extend through 2023, 2024, just so he can be on hand for this? Or Yeah, just uh, he's going to keep extending stuff until uh, they don't open <laughs> anything else worldwide. I noticed probably not coincidentally that the president of, uh, of China has now changed whatever bylaws he needed to in the country's constitution in order to become president for life. Just saying. So that kind of brings us up to speed as to the whys and wherefores is the uh, the Marvel stuff that is going on at Disneyland Paris. And like I said, if I were an investor and a banker, I'd be a little concerned about the whole Park 3 thing because, you know, when you're told it's going to be a Marvel park. Well, it could be. They, they could just change the studios over and build something else, yeah, which is what I think something. they'll do. All right, Jim, thanks for that story. All right, folks, you've been listening to the Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill. We are produced fabulously by one Aaron Adams. Please go on to iTunes and Stitcher and rate the show and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.